I'll have some clam chowder followed by beef steak on rye, pumpkin pie with cream and coffee. I want a green salad on the side. Don't forget the friends. All right, welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. We've got a big show for you today. We're excited to be here. Chef Terry is still traveling the wilds of Morocco with his wife, Kathy. So uh, into the uh, co-chef co seat is my daughter, Loretta Rodothea Douglas. Nice to be here again. Do you, you know what uh, Rodothea means? No. No? I, all this time? You're 32 years old. You don't know? No. Gift of the gods. Really? Yeah. I thought it was a made-up name. No. <laughs> it's your grandmother's I mean, I name. knew it was my grandmother's name, but I thought maybe that was a made-up name. No, Dot, Grandma Dot, Rodothea. That was her name. You're named after her. Sweetheart of a woman. Uh, we have a large show for you today, two hours. Hope you're going to hang with us in your garden or your car, your kitchen, or wherever you happen to be. Podcasting, straight up Cairo Radio. We're coming to you from the Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia, right above Lola and across the street from the Dahlia Bakery and Sirius Pie. Uh, we love this corner in downtown Seattle. You can join us if you want and be part of our live audience. You guys are alive, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Be part of our live audience by going to hotstovesociety.com, and, or you can watch us on YouTube on Friday mornings. I guess you can download it anytime during the week, too, right? Yes, you can join us live on Friday mornings when we do our show here in the kitchens of the Hot Stove Society. Uh, we got uh, October is National Seafood Month, and every year we try to talk about different Seafoods, uh, talk with fishermen. Today we have Andy Wink and Sam Mitchell. They're going to talk about Bristol Bay, what's going on up there. It's uh, the apple harvest, so many varieties. And, uh, you know, last year we did a Hot Stove Society tasting panel and the Cosmic Crisp out of 10 different Washington varieties, Cosmic Crisp came out on top. Definitely my favorite. Is it? Yep. Yep. Molly Gilbert's going to be here to visit. Uh, she's got a new book out called Sheet Pan Sweets. And I remember we had her on the show when she did her sheet pan dinners. And so here she is back with a dessert variety of that same book. Uh, sheet pan cookie, it's all over the New York Times. It's very popular. Do you, you can't put a sheet pan in your little air fryer well, thing. Well, my that, little air fryer has a tiny little sheet pan. But no, I also cook a sheet pan, you know, in my oven. Do you? Yes. Are you sure? I do use my oven once in a while, I promise. Sadly, my daughter is an air fryer freak. Apparently, a lot of people are. I debunked that, you know, on my evening... Yeah, let's not get into it because you really did a, a, a crack job of debunking the air fryer. Okay. Loretta is a big lover of rice cakes, so we're going to talk about rice cakes. Uh, it's funny, as you grow up, you know, uh, I took you to dim sum quite a bit, and we got eating lobako, which is a daikon and rice flour cake that's pan-fried, very gelatinous or glutinous. And so many people freak out over that texture, but because you grew up with it, you now crave yeah, it, right? it is my favorite texture, so. Uh, and then, of course, it's trivia time. Amy has taken over for Pam this week. Amy is our former producer who ditched us for better, bigger and better things, um, but is filling in this week while Pam's in New York City. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Yeah. It's nice to have a reprise of your uh, directing the show. Uh, are, are we going to play trivia today? We are. Rub, rub with love trivia? Yes. Okay, good. I mean, we could do other trivia. <laughs> <laughs> but no, rub with love tasty trivia is going to wind up our show. First, it's taste of the week. Do you want to go first? Sure. What spurred this whole rice cake thing is I recently returned for dinner to one of my very, very favorite Seattle restaurants, Jewel. Uh, 
And I hadn't been since the start of the pandemic, honestly, which was uh, my bad. But in that time, I also had a baby and stopped going out to dinner. So um, I got back to Jewel and my their famous dish and my favorite dish that they make is a spicy chorizo uh, rice cake and they pan fry it and the edges of those rice cakes get super, super crispy and it was just as delicious as I remembered, and I was totally happy to have it back in my life. So during our segment, let's try and break down how they did that. Yeah. If you can, because that's, you know, that's how I kind of taught myself how to cook was going out to restaurants and then kind of thinking about, well, how did they get to this spot of the recipe and how do they get to that Christmas level or, you know, yeah. things of that sort. So um, I want to know because I've never been able to replicate it the way that they do it at home. So my taste of the week is uh, we just had an Etta's. Named after you, Loretta Edda's. Edda's is opening in three weeks, November 1st or so. And uh, we just had a tasting of the menu for the third time. And things are getting better. Yep, coming together. And uh, recipes are getting dialed in. And my favorite was uh, the smoked brisket. So it's kind of like a barbecue theme. It's not kind of, it is. It's called Edda's Big Mountain Barbecue. And it's uh, we're doing some smoked brisket. But we're not doing like uh, Jack's. You know, Jack's yeah. is very Texas and classic kind of southwest uh southern barbecue uh it's not kansas city it's not uh carolina, North carolina. Yeah. it's not any of those it's it's my own version our own version of kind of northwest barbecue but we do have some throwbacks and one is the the brisket cheesesteak sandwich because you know i have cheesesteaks in my soul uh, growing up on the east coast uh, until i was 18 so i have a lot of feelings about cheesesteaks and i like the the classic version but now I'm going to make, I'm going to break my own rule, do, do something <laughs> a little bit different. And we're taking the smoked brisket and we're slicing it fairly thin. And then we're giving them the quick sear after it's been smoked, putting it with uh, the sauteed peppers and onions. And I love mushrooms, our, our veggie rub, which has got fennel based to garlic rub, uh, veggie mayo. And it's just this decadent, it reminds me a little bit about of a, good pastrami sandwich that's got too much meat and not enough bread <laughs> uh so if you can eat it without feeling sick afterward it's really good it's delicious <laughs> uh, in that world i also have uh something that i had early on i don't know where but i'm totally stealing the idea of an onion stack and it's so not good. like a, it's not like an onion that are stacked up rings that are stacked up high it's more of a shaved onion that the stacking part is really that it fills the fryer and almost comes out like a brick. And so they're dredged in cornmeal flour and yeah, they're trashy served good. with spicy ranch. and mm. Love it. So, yeah, a good way if you ever are feeling really good about yourself and your weight and everything else <laughs> like that and feeling like you've worked out and feeling, come down to Edda's Barbecue. <laughs> it's right by a gym. It's right yeah. next to a, a gym, yeah. <laughs> and have a little brisket cheesesteak and an onion stack. Uh, all right, let's keep on with our show. When we come back, it's peak of the season time for apples. Uh, what are we going to do? How are we going to make them? Let's do that when we come back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Stick me on account of my sweet potato pie. Apples, peaches. All right, we're back. It's time for beautiful Washington apples, 
in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. Uh, chef Loretta, uh, or actually, you're legal counsel, Loretta. You're not really Chef Loretta. <laughs> hey, uh, I can moonlight. You can moonlight, that's for sure. But uh, she is our legal counsel at the company, so don't do anything wrong in this in this <laughs> room down here. The, the gavel. We often have apples in our house. Your son, Hercules, will not eat apples. Oh, he he's into them now. Oh, is he? We've turned an apple corner recently. Really? And now the only way to get him to uh, get through the grocery store while we're shopping is to give him an apple and let him. You weigh it first? Oh. Or do you weigh him first? No, but most stores will give a kid one piece of fruit for free while you shop. Hot tip if you have a baby. And do they say so or do you just take it and then they don't no, want it back they, after it's got They teeth say so, in. but every time I mm-hmm. try to pay for it at the end, they say, oh, no, 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 kids, fruit free. Yeah. Fruit free? PCC I did not know signs. that. Yeah. I'm going to start eating Whole an apple. Foods and Met Market, I think, all do it for sure that I know. So. Cool. What are they going to do when you and hand it? And town and country, actually. Good. So. Well, that's a good idea. I never, I never knew that was a thing. You got to keep them entertained, yeah. so you can spend more money at the store. It's, it's genius, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the Washington State Tree Fruit Association on Monday projected the 2022 Washington State fresh apple crop will total about 108 million 40-pound boxes. That's an 11.1 percent decrease from 2021's total. We're pleased with the size of the harvest, particularly in the face of a long, cold spring. And that is really important. We all remember this spring when it was just was cold rained and, and rainy rained every and day. <laughs> and what's interesting to me about all that is that right now at our farm in, on the east side, it is spectacular. Yeah. And the harvest is coming in right now like it's the beginning of August. Yeah, it's weird to still be getting beautiful, perfect tomatoes right perfect now. Perfect tomatoes, and yeah. And, you know, in October. So, and apples, we're, we are just getting ready to pick our apple tree as we drive... Uh, as I drive through the wine country there. So if you're, if you want to know where our farm is, if you go over the pass on 90 and at Ellensburg, you kind of take a right on 82, the, the interstate that kind of goes to South central Washington. Uh, and there's two stops in the town of Prosser, Washington, two exits. We're the first exit. So we're right there on the Yakima river and it's hot, right? And without the snowpack and the ice melt, uh, we wouldn't have a farm because there's no irrigation, irrigation water, and it's too dry over there to to farm anything but sage, rats. sage <laughs> weeds and rats. Yeah, sage plants and rats. Uh, we call them sage rats. They're not really a rat, but they they're yeah, just they, about that same size, yeah. and yeah, like a groundhog. Anyway, uh, apples are hanging, and apples are being picked. When you drive over there on 82, you are constantly. I mean, literally, if I spend 40 minutes on 82, I will go buy 40 trucks. Filled yeah. with apples. I mean, uh, what treetops over there? Right? Everything's Everything. over there. Yeah. And they're all going back and forth because a, a cold house, say in Yakima, downtown Yakima, will bring in apples and apple varieties from 10 different farmers who have contracted to hold their fruit. And then, you know, each of those farmers has different varieties. And so you see all these boxes, right? They're huge pick boxes on the back of these semi trailers. And they're just filled with. You know, a variety of apple from a certain orchard, and it's just going everywhere. So it's it's quite spectacular. Right now, there's apples. the The best thing to do is when you see a truck full of bales, like they're they're plastic coated, what looks like hay bales, but mm-hmm. they're plastic coated bales of fresh dried hops. Mm. You pull in behind the truck, and you go the speed the truck is going. You just stay there, and the smell of the hops. Blowing back off of that truck is unbelievable. 
I can't wait. I'm going right after the show today. Because, yeah, so. you know, your nature is you want to just pass that truck and just, you know, get, get where you're going. But just take a minute, pull in behind the truck that's going at 60 miles an hour, and just open your windows and let the smell of the hops just Waft. engulf your car. <laughs> uh, apples, Cosmic Crisp, why do you like them? I love a super, super crisp apple. To me, that is my number one criteria. The moment that an apple is like a little bit soft, I'm out. So um, I was a diehard honey crisp uh, person, and I still, if I can't find a cosmic crisp, that's my next choice. Uh-huh. Um, but a really cold, really crisp apple is how I want to eat them every mm-hmm. time. And cosmic crisp, I find to be kind of the most consistently super crisp. What I found was that the honey crisp was that they were crisp also, but mm-hmm. when the cosmic crisp came out, they had a better flavor. They mm-hmm. were more. Appley, they're you know, more appley. Yeah. They're not just straight sweet. They mm-hmm. have that kind of more, I think, a little bit earthier mm-hmm. flavor too that I like. So, yeah. I'm not sure what the time frame is, but I think every ten or twelve years they cut or pull the trees out of an orchard and replant, oh, really? and and that's all about yield on crop and getting the new varieties in. But uh, I think they said Cosmic Crisp went from zero percent of the crop five or eight years ago to an, it's now well over 10 percent of the crop uh if i'm not mistaken so it's 4.6 percent uh, 3.2 from last year yeah so i mean that's quadrupled yeah. in size the, the the crop uh from last year and that's how they do that is they just yank the trees and just start over when they have a hot hot variety and a lot of that's coming out of washington state university their programs yeah on horticulture They're constantly working on yeah. new varietals and hybrids you know, there's other crisp apples like Granny Smith's, but they also are very tart. Very and tart. And I do love Granny that. Smith uh-huh. apples also, but I'm, I'm not like a huge regular apple eater. I know a lot of people pick one up, you know, every day, and I'm more in the, the berry family of, uh-huh. of my everyday fruit. But peak of the season, when you pick one up and it's perfect, there's a few things that are more delicious. When I drive, when I drive, when I walk the aisles of the grocery store, I'm still amazed at how much apple juice and mm-hmm. apple sauce and things like that are on the shelves. It seems so easy to make applesauce. Personally, you don't even have to core them, but I, I, I just take the little core seed out, pop the whole thing in, skin it all, and just put uh, uh, for maybe a quart of apples that are cut up, um, maybe two ounces of apple cider. It's no water. Two ounces of apple cider or two ounces of apple cognac, you know, like Armin, uh, Calvados. Mm-hmm. And I just put my lid on and put it on low and slow and just let the moisture from the apples steam the apples. And then you just run it through a mill and you've got applesauce. So easy. Season it know, any way you like. My one-year-old crushes like four pouches a day of applesauce. Really? I'm making applesauce God, so every funny. day. He never used to eat any of that stuff. I know. Every day, something new. But yeah, he's very into applesauce pouches right now. But uh-huh. I can't keep up with making applesauce that fast. Why not? <laughs> be there all day uh-huh uh apple crisp do you make those i do make apple crisp my favorite apple dessert is a tart to tan classic uh-huh. tart to tan i just it's so delicious i know that it's not the most showcase the seasonal apples because they are coated in caramel sauce and mm-hmm. things like that but for me that is that's the peak apple dessert apple tart to tan have you made them yeah yeah and what's your what's your trick to having it? A lot of people when they turn it out of the pan, the apples kind of get all the apples 
kind of move around or it's too soupy one or the other i like i think it's beautiful when you do the really thin sliced apples but i keep my apples pretty chunky Uh um in there also because i like the texture when you get like a nice big bite sometimes when you do those thin slices they just mush a little bit Mm -hmm. looks gorgeous and fancy but um, I want to cut into a big piece of apple. When yeah, I'm I do too. I want if my tart to ten is say two inches thick, I want one and a half inches of a big yeah, chunk of apple. That's I totally agree. Decidedly a bite mm-hmm. and not like a. I don't want it to be applesauce. Yeah. So uh, I want it to be still have some texture left to it. So I have to I actually have never perfected it. That's one of those things. I know you find that Mom hard, makes a hard to believe one. that I haven't perfected something, but. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, uh, shocking. Great having my daughter on the show. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, your mother does make a beautiful yeah. one, but she's a little bit more patient than I am. Uh, it's National Seafood Month, and today we're talking to the folks from Bristol Bay, uh, both fishermen and the executive director of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. So uh, when we come back, it's all about Bristol Bay Salmon on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo, and we're cooking away here. We have a beautiful piece of uh, Bristol Bay sockeye, a whole side that our friends have brought uh, from up north. It's October is National Seafood Month to celebrate uh, local fishing organizations. The Port of Seattle and the Seattle Propeller Club have joined together through uh, Seafood 101 campaign. Today we welcome Andy Wink. Thank you. Uh, he's the director of Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association and Bristol Bay fisherman Sam Mitchell. Did you catch this fish, Sam? I did. Oh, it's beautiful. Very, very pretty. I'm trying to show this uh, way of cooking it here. If you were watching online, you could see what's going on here, but I, I didn't pin down my belly there. So The goals of the campaign are to encourage folks to eat more seafood and discover its nutritional value, uh, also to highlight the commitment to sustainability, and to celebrate the economic value of the maritime and fishing industries. The economic value is something that works for me uh, to, to understand the process. When I've worked on Bristol Bay issues, you know, trying to stop Pebble Mine and all those kind of things, it's always, the for me, the thing that drove home the, the way to think about it is the, the economic nature. You have to put an, a, a business around this fishery so that people choose the fishery instead of mining, right? So... If you don't give people the opportunity to make enough money to feed their family or to put their kids in school, they're going to choose something that does, which is not necessarily good for the world or the earth. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the fishery is so well-renowned because it is a commercial venture, and that actually, I think, even helps us protect the resource in, in, in an odd way. In Bristol Bay, we've seen fairly consistent runs, um, whereas, you know, with some fisher or some areas where you don't get that, that commercial business around it, Sometimes the runs are a lot more variable um, and really boom and bust. 
We're very fortunate in Bristol Bay this year had a record harvest, which is saying something. 70 million fish, I heard. So, yeah, almost 80 million fish returned. Oh Fishermen like Sam caught about 60 million. Uh-huh. Um, and the previous record was about a little under 45. So oh, flew way past it. I mean, you know, wild salmon are still thriving in Bristol Bay even today. Mm-hmm. So. You know, there's other areas of the Northwest that aren't feeling that uh, increase. And so it begs the question, are some, of our, are some of the fish from the Canadian coast rivers or other Alaska rivers heading towards Bristol Bay because of water temperatures or this or that? Have you figured out why it is that there's so many Bristol Bay salmon? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's still more theory at this point, but a lot of the uh, Bristol Bay sockeye that, that come out from the rivers, uh, they're going out and mixing in the Bering Sea, so they don't tend to travel real far south, at least that's what we think. There's actually a research cruise that happened this summer, so we're waiting results from oh, that. Oh, good. Yeah, so that would be very interesting, where they tried to sample uh, salmon way, way, way out in the ocean. See where they and were. Do they do that by DNA or what do they do? How do they track? Uh, yeah, it's it's mostly genetics. They uh-huh. can kind of tell what stock it's from. Uh, interesting. The genetics in Bristol Bay are pretty fascinating. They're able to track, based on looking at a salmon, which river it went to. So salmon aren't just going back to the bay; they're going back to the exact. You know, there's 14 right. rivers up there, so it's it's pretty fascinating. That is so cool. Yeah, and, uh, I would have no idea how that works, <laughs> other than they can do it with us too. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like they should have less DNA, but. I- there's no reason for that. <laughs> I never thought about fish DNA before. <laughs> what else is going on with the Bristol Bay? Uh, I've worked with the Bristol Bay Native Corp. Uh, you are part of a marketing side of this. But what else is going on up in Bristol Bay? That, right. And, and where do we stand on Pebble Mine? Yeah, well, um, yeah, let's talk about Pebble first. Uh, we stand in a good place with Pebble. Uh, the, the EPA is re- reviewing its 404C um, proposed determination. And so there's a few steps involved in this, and it gets pretty wonky real quick. But basically, we, we feel like we're getting to a point to where the EPA is going to say you can't mine, um, you, you can't have a large-scale mine in this particular area. You know, we, we want to protect the salmon. And so they're going to set up some, some criteria and pretty uh, strict criteria around what mining could be like in, in the pebble deposit. Because mm-hmm. yeah. part of the problem is not just the mine itself. It's access to the mine and housing for the workers and... Uh, all that comes with a mine, right? So, and the tailing ponds are the big issue. When I think about it, that's my big, you know, red flag is this big pit of extremely toxic chemicals that are just held back by a wall of earth. You right. Know, need like, to be kept there forever. Right. Right. Which is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you talk to an engineer, that never happens. That never so, happens. Yeah. Right. And we've seen we've seen when it doesn't work in uh, up in yeah. Canada and Brazil and Australia and all kinds of places where dams have broken that we're never going to break. And, of course, up there it's built on a, a fault. Bristol Bay Sockeye, from a national perspective, uh, how is it going? Is it, I, I mean, Copper River really kind of led the way in, of, uh, for many of us to learn how to market these seafoods nationally. How's Bristol Bay doing? Is well, it starting to be recognized? Yeah, we're in thousands of stores um, around the country. Really, uh, these days, if you see sockeye in your grocery store, there's a very good chance it came from Bristol Bay. Um, I think we we're about 75% of the Alaska harvest this year. Bristol Bay is a really kind of the foundation and first story of alaska salmon industry so it's it's pretty crazy but in a state known for salmon 50 percent or more of the dollars that are generated come from bristol bay in the alaska salmon industry yeah it's been really cool for me uh you know i started fishing in 2008 
And even just in that... Um, you look too nice to be a fisherman. <laughs> Doesn't he look like a computer, I, you computer know, science only, person? You're not the only person to have told me that. That's, yeah. Get me in my bibs, though. I might look a little different. Where's the scruffy beard? Yeah, that's right. Well, well they're all so healthy. They clean up really nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you saw me on July 15th, you wouldn't... Okay. I would look just like a fisherman. I'd most smell like I would have smelled you first. Right, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a fact. Just in my time going up there, it's, it's so cool to have seen, you know, Bristol Bay Salmon represented called out in in stores and just 15 years ago that was not happening and right. you know that's so intimately tied with the value of the fishery too that's obviously we think that's cool too but uh yeah just the the recognition for the public and you know seeing seeing bristol bay called out in public has has really it's night and day even 10 15 years ago and now yeah, and you know, so many times people ask me, especially in May when the Copper River comes out, it's like, is it really better, or is it really worth it, or all that sort of thing. And I, I just want them to think about it from a different perspective, which is that Copper River helped put a more true value on beautiful wild fish. You know, for a moment in time there, for a lot many years, that fish was worth less than hamburger from you know Eastern Washington on on a. On a desert plain, you know, mm-hmm. that fish, this beautiful, wild, delicious creature was undervalued so so drastically. And that's what Copper River, more than whether it's a better salmon or not, what it, what it did was it created a, a, a better environment for wild salmon to be appreciated. Absolutely. And, and kind of a path forward, right? Right. I mean, and then you know, Bristol yep. Bay's following and it. And Bristol right? Bay's followed that with, you know, tens of millions of pounds. I mean, uh, prior to... 2009, only about 20% of the fish was chilled in mm-hmm. Bristol Bay. Yeah. Now that's over 90, 95%. We're yeah. chilling and, almost and all And chilled, what you mean is so caught live, bled, and iced? Right. Rather than going straight to a cannery? Well, yeah, or rather than going straight into a, a, a fish hold that doesn't have chilling. I see. Yeah, I mean, these guys have put in uh, RSW units, refrigerated seawater, in their boats. Just about all the boats have them. That's like fifty to $70,000 mm-hmm. that they're making the investment mm-hmm. to make premium fish like what right. you're seeing today so even if it's going to a cannery it's still a better product going to the cannery is what you're saying right. yeah right interesting yeah i hadn't really thought about it like that yeah it's it's uh totally related to what we were just talking about but it's, it's amazing just in the last 10 15 years the amount of fishermen that have gotten on board with this quality and it was it's funny growing up in in a fishing family there was always kind of a uh you know it was it was too bad that copper river was getting so much more money for their fish than than us right. um, but that really you're like, the what, poor cousin exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah but what you were just talking about is totally the um what bristol bay has kind of latched onto you know it's there's are certain things that you have to do if you want to increase the value and right. copper river was really good at that right from the beginning and it's taken us a little bit longer but we're getting there too and it needs some work still i mean some oh, of the yeah. some of the fisheries or some of the fish i have to give back because they're just not handled properly and so mm-hmm. that's going to be an industry up there that has to be dealt with in the copper river i imagine part of it's because so many fish are coming in so fast that uh, it's puts pressure on your handling techniques yeah and i mean 60 million fish but caught mostly in the span of about uh two weeks yeah you know is where the majority of it comes so it, it is really hectic and frantic and and we are as an industry working on how can we be more efficient um how can we you know put the best fish in the market every year uh, uh that we can so, you know, we're, I think we've come so far. Right. And we've, and we've still got a little ways to go. I guess go, just, I'm saying as a exciting, chef, I just think yeah. we got to continue down the path of quality because 
sometimes um, once you thaw that fillet, which most of it is sold frozen, let's be real, mm-hmm. uh, you want it to be pristine and like the one I just had to like today that? was <laughs> like that one. Yeah. yeah, that's not how they always come. No, you're right about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pristine. I mean, just a, you know. Uh, Volume context. There are certain boats that, you know, in a span of 24 hours, they will catch 50,000 pounds of salmon, but sometimes they? more. And I think that's more my question. Should yeah, no, it's, it is it is a question of how the fishery runs, you know, on yeah, a macro level. I get it, but at the end of the day, you want good quality. When we come back, let's talk about what it's like to be on the boat uh, and to uh, the excitement of getting ready for the season. And do you ever cook it yourself? Or you're going to have a little bite here today. I did with my taco rub. So um, when we come back, we'll talk about that on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back in the kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society show. And we're talking Bristol Bay Sockeye Salmon with Andy Wink, Executive Director of Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association, and Bristol Bay Fisherman Sam Mitchell. And this is all in celebration of National Seafood Month, the, this whole October, representing organizations like the Port of Seattle, the Seattle Propeller Club, lots of fishing. Ken's over here. Ken's been with us for many years during this month. And so. We always look forward to seeing him. So we heard a lot about Bristol Bay. Let's go right to the fishing boat. Okay, you know you have two weeks. And I I would hesitate to say that you have to make your annual living on those two weeks. But I think people say, well, two weeks, that's a lot, you know, not very much work. But you have to set up your boat, right? You got to do everything. What's What's it like to be... A Bristol Bay Ranger. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like what I imagine people who were prospecting for gold 100 years ago, you know, that kind of scene. You go up there and where, where your boat is based is a place where you can't drive to. So you got to fly in or take a boat. It's different from anywhere I've ever seen. I remember looking at the boat for the first time realizing that I was going to live there for a month when I was 16 and I almost, you know, started crying. It's like, it's, it's hard living, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're living in a bunkhouse and you're eating in a mess hall and you're, you know, working all the time. There is a really cool sense of community up there though. It, it has a totally different feel from anywhere else I've ever been, you know, again, like that gold rush kind of thing where Mm -hmm. everyone's here to, you know, for the same reason. And, and it is, it's really special, you know, there are, it's always a bit bittersweet for me going up there because, you know, it's when everything is getting nice here and I'm going up there to um, not, you know, hang out on the lake or whatever. But it's, it's uh, you know, the sun sets at 1130 at night and it rises at four in the morning. You know, some nights it never gets dark. And yeah, you're, you're up there working for a couple of weeks and you know you're about to leave the dock. And then once you do, there's no... You know, we have a radio and we have a cell phone. There was a little bit of of email access this year. That was a new thing for us. But you're pretty much just out there and it your life just turns into, you know, fishing for 16 hours a day, maybe more. And then you sleep a little bit, you eat a little bit. You might read for an hour and you just keep doing that. And then when you get the call to stand down, which is something that's pretty well known in Bristol Bay, where it's time to let the fish get through Mm -hmm. 100 percent. Do you look forward to that, I bet? It depends. I mean, most of the time, once it gets hot and heavy, you don't really stop. That has There are exceptions to that, but 
there have definitely been times when in the middle of the season it's like, oh man, a break would be great right now. But for the most part, once you start, you're just you're just kind of going. So, um, are you a gill netter? What do you? Yeah, like, Bristol Bay. So all Bristol Bay is it's a gill net fishery, and the maximum boat size is 32 feet, which is cool. That it's really a, an equalizer. Uh-huh. So you can't have somebody out there big just raking it all in. Exactly. And, you know, I will say the boats, you know, there's there's boats from 50 years ago that are still being fished up there. And a 32-foot boat from 1975 is much smaller than a 32-foot <laughs> boat that was built last year. But um, still, that's a that's a, a, a powerful regulation. All right. So now you've brought 30,000 pounds of fish onto your boat. Uh-huh. What do you do? Because you can't. That can happen in a day, right? Yeah. So our boat would, we don't have that kind of capacity. So okay, you're so. talking more. 10,000 okay, pounds. 10,000. What do yeah. you do now? So they're all kept in holds, which okay. are basically just, you know, you put a board on top of it, you can walk on top of it on the deck, um, and they're kept in floating seawater, and the seawater is constantly pumping. You know, mm-hmm. they're kept at 33, 34 degrees, um, and you fish until, well, either until the time says you have to stop mm-hmm. or until you're full, uh, and then you offload your fish to a bigger boat. Um, to a trawler of some sort. Uh, not to a trawler, but a factory. A, well, usually it's a crab boat. A lot of okay. the deadliest catch crab boats will do that in okay. the summertime. Um, and then this is a, a, a process that has really improved in the last you know, 10, 12 years, that same time period we were talking about, where the fish is it's cut up within a very short amount of time, you know, uh-huh. 12, 24 hours. And so the whole time, you know, after it gets out of the water, it's all about keeping it in rigor and, and all those things. And that, that process has, uh, has really improved over the last 10 years. So, yeah, it gets offloaded to a bigger boat, and then they keep it. And uh, Do they run it to the dock or not? They'll either run it to the dock or a floating processor. They have okay. big 400-foot floating processors up there also. So, yeah, it's a whole... It's a whole you turn around and go back out. Exactly, yeah. over and over and over again. So, yeah, usually twice a day we'll offload the fish to a big boat. And then you might take a little nap after you drop your fish off and do it all again. Interesting. Okay. Sam and about 15,000 other people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be hard That's to keep your fish straight. And so you have to really be concerned as a fisherman if you want the highest value for your fish. It's probably all commodity. But in the, in the perfect world, if you want the best value for your fish, you want it to be handled perfectly. Yes. And so and you have to pick out your processor, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that is, you know, these fillets obviously look good. We're, we're pretty happy with it. But that is a... There are things that happen that are outside of your control as a fisherman. Because, you know, like one of those big terms that is is that you hear nowadays is like frozen at sea and yeah. and things like that. You know, it's great that that's more of a thing now also. Um, but again, with the 32-foot boat limit in Bristol Bay, there's no freezing on board. There's mm-hmm. no cutting. There's no – you can't cut a fish on board while you're working. It's – we catch the fish, and that's that's what we do. Well, we're really thankful as restaurateurs – uh, we're part of the economy around that fishery, right? Uh, so by us taking it and celebrating it and selling it by brand, the Bristol Bay sockeye, uh, we're helping that economy to make the fishery more manageable and more valuable to the locals, which is what's important to me is that it's that it, we're getting maximized value out of the fishery so that those folks don't choose mining instead. Well, and we're really, you know, for me it's to It's a find, vote. It, it, it absolutely is. It's totally a vote with your dollars kind of yeah. thing. And, you know, to, to hear first time that I heard that you were so involved with, with Bristol Bay was, was really exciting for me. And we're really, you know, thankful for that because those are the kind of things that, that change what we're trying to change. So, right. Could we uh, uh, talk a little bit about yeah. where folks can, can get uh, Bristol Bay Sockeye? Yeah, so, um, you know, if, if you're not in studio with us and uh, you can uh, find Bristol Bay Sockeye really anywhere around town, you know, buy it from fishermen like Sam, but we've made it easy for people to go to find.bristolbaysockeye.org. 
you put in your zip code and up will pop options that are near you, um, you know, in your state, in your neighborhood type thing. So that's so really near cool. you in a grocery store, uh, but they can also get it online, right? Right. So actually, uh, you know, when you put your zip code in there and we're not keeping any of these, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> but basically it'll show you fishermen that are around you that sell directly uh-huh. like Sam. It'll show you grocery stores in your area that carry Bristol Bay Sockeye as well as online uh, uh, places you can find it as well. So, you know, I don't know if I could buy convenient. from Sam. He's not grouchy enough. You know? Yeah. You want an ornery <laughs> fisherman? I want an ornery fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on um, here. And then, you know, if you don't want to cook it yourself, we've got a great uh, salmon week coming up November 14th through the 20th here in Seattle. So you can find Bristol Bay Sockeye being a special menu item kind of around town at a bunch of restaurants. And I think the easiest way is just, again, find the website, uh, Google Seattle Bristol Bay Salmon Week, and uh, you'll, you'll see it there. A lot Perfect. of great restaurant partners in that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We've been talking with Andy Wink, Executive Director of Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association. Jeez, that's a long title. And uh, fabulous fish, uh, Bristol Bay fisherman, Sam Mitchell. Thank you so much for your time today. When we come back, Molly Gilbert, author of Sheet Pan Sweets, joins us for two segments to share her simple, streamlined dessert recipes. Loretta shares her enthusiasm for rice cakes. And, of course, we play our Rub With Love Food for Thought trivia on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Fish and chips and vinegar, vinegar, vinegar. Fish and chips and vinegar, pepper, 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 salt on your own. If I, I knew you were coming, I'd a bake a cake, bake a cake, bake a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd a bake a cake, hot. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show from the Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. The beautiful Hotel Andra. I love this place. Modern Swedish decor is what Craig, the owner, calls it. Oh, I recently stayed here. Oh, did you? The remodel is lovely. Is it? Yes. The rooms are nice? Rooms are beautiful. Good. You know, we trade $1,000 worth of food a month for $1,000 worth of rooms a month. I know. I took advantage of one night of trade. He always uses the food, and we never use the rooms. (laughs) Well, I did, and it was great. Uh, It is the Hot Stove Society show. Loretta is sitting in for Chef Thierry, who's in Morocco. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Right now, we're going to talk to Molly Gilbert. She is the author of Sheet Pan Sweets and used to be uh, the author, or still is, I guess, the author of Sheet Pan Suppers. Uh, Sheet pans are very she-she these days. They're all the rage these days. I wrote Sheet Pan Suppers. Almost 10 years ago now, and really? people are still talking, you know, home cooking on a sheet pan is still a very popular thing. So. Well, I think Melissa Clark on the New York Times, yep. she lives on a sheet pan. Yeah, I, I, you know, I pretty much do too, so I get do it. Do you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you use a quarter sheet, a half sheet, or a full sheet? I use a half sheet and sometimes a quarter sheet, depending on how, how big I'm going. In the restaurants, you know, they're called sheet pans in the restaurant business, but right. at home they're called cookie sheets, right? That's right. And so sometimes people get confused, well, I don't, I don't know what that is. And right, well, you got to be careful that you're not using a cookie sheet for some of these recipes because there's no lip on that you know around cookie the sides have an edge I see. right you need the edge for for these recipes okay so tell us about uh, how you got started down this path i know are, are you a mom i'm a mom of three now three congratulations yes. thank you i have a three-month-old at home wow. so but sometimes these busy. fast recipes or these simple ideas come out of necessity and that's why i was asking that yeah well so 10 years ago i was not a mom um but i was living in san francisco and i was writing on my food blog and doing a number of different 
food-related um, jobs. I was teaching some kids cooking classes, and I was off of... You must be a saint. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was a good time. Um, and I was, like, just luckily hooked up with this editor um, who... She had the original idea for doing a cookbook of sheet pan meals, and so we kind of fleshed it out together. I thought it was brilliant because, you know, as you know, restaurants use sheet pans all the time, but I don't think home cooks had necessarily taken advantage of all the benefits of cooking on a sheet pan. So, um, yeah, we fleshed out the idea. I, you know, wrote this cookbook, and off off we went. I, and, you know, from a restaurateur's perspective, I have to wash these sheet pans when they're done. <laughs> and that, they... I They're love pain. parchment paper. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's one of the first tips is line that sheet pan maybe with some foil, parchment, whatever you have. Right. Yeah. And then what's the, where do we go from there? From there, um, I continued blogging and then I wrote um, my second cookbook, which is called One Pan and Done. So I kind of, I didn't want to be boxed into being like the sheet pan lady. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I expanded and, and, you know, kept the idea of still like one pot, one pan, easy, fuss free, you know, for the home cook, but... You know, pulling out your cast iron dishes, your, um, you know, Dutch ovens, all the other pans in the arsenal. Right. And then, uh, yeah, the sheet pan suppers had a dessert section, has a dessert section, but it was pretty small. And um, I'm, a, I love baking. I'm a baker and I love, I have a major sweet tooth. So I really wanted to flesh out that chapter. Um, and so sheet pan sweets was born. Do mm. you have favorites? Where do people start? I do. So my favorite is actually the cover recipe. Um, It's this very swoopy chocolate frosting. It's called Jack's Chocolate Chip Cake. It's a classic sheet cake, super nostalgic. My three-year-old son, Jack, wanted it for his birthday. Uh Um, And it has this really rich fudge frosting on top, which is just... Totally looks like something my grandmother made for us growing That's right. up. Yeah. It looks like that perfect like lunchroom. Exactly. Yeah. You can't yeah. go... It's one of my favorites in the book. Um, so I'm going to stop you for one second. You said it's a classic sheet pan cake... So what is that? Sheet so it's just a sheet, sheet cake. cake. Yeah, it's just oh. one layer in the sheet pan. You can serve it right from the pan. Mm-hmm. It feeds a ton of people, which is one of the benefits of baking on a sheet pan. Is like you're, you're getting an entire tray of dessert. So, you know, this time of year, if you have a holiday thing, if you're like have a school bake sale, this is kind of going to be perfect for your back pocket. I see. If you are an old Seattleite, you remember Borokini's Bakery, which was famous for their sheet cakes. Right, and those those are all layered cakes, but those were all made in sheet pans and then uh, emptied out and put right one on so top I've got of the a other. Chapter for there's that too. That's the next chapter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's you can do the layer cakes. You can cut. You know, you bake it just on, in one pan, which is great. You don't have to pull out all the round pans or you know all the different kinds of pans. Just one layer of cake, and then cut out your circles or squares or whatever. Stack it up. Um, and in that chapter, there's also rolled cakes as well. So you can get a little bit fancier with it, um, but still the same idea of you're just baking one cake. Isn't it funny how rolled cakes, uh, they create the ooh moment? <laughs> well, that's, it's really, the one, you know, that's the one I had bookmarked that I wanted to talk about because I saw pumpkin tiramisu roll. And I'm generally in charge of Thanksgiving dessert at mm-hmm. our house. And I immediately put it aside and was like, all right, we need to talk about that one because that might be... The Thanksgiving dessert this year in our house. Definitely. I actually just made that one yesterday for a demo that I was doing live and I went to go turn it out like towards the camera, which I don't normally do. I uh-huh. normally do it toward me and it just like kind of sadly slid oh. out and cracked <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is not what I was going for. But we patched How it up. How did you recover? It was fine. Sure. I just kind of slid it back on the sheet. We, uh. You know, 
I feel like that one gets a, a thick dusting of cocoa powder on top, like a tiramisu, and that just like hides all the sins that you don't want anyone to see. So uh-huh. it was it was all good. What's the booze in that one? Uh, rum. Rum. Yes. Yeah. Rum. But you could use vanilla if you don't want to use booze. Uh-huh. Oh, we want to use the booze. <laughs> <laughs> you can use any kind of booze. We want those children to go to sleep oh, at night. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> I did let my kids have a, a little bit afterwards, and I was like, I don't know if this is the wisest choice, but they liked it. So. They liked it, I'm sure. And then we only have two minutes left, so any other favorites in there? When somebody buys your book, yeah, perfect well, uh, Christmas present or pre-holiday book. You yeah, know. there's a bars section, so like a giant pan of brownies or blondies. I have a s'mores blondie recipe in there. There's a cookie section. There's even breakfast and a couple bread recipes in there. There's like a challah, you know, for maybe Hanukkah, the holidays. Uh-huh. Um, a you make a challah in a sheet pan? That is radical. <laughs> so radical. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I, you know, in the breakfast session, I love, instead of like scooping out muffins individually, you can make a blueberry muffin cake or an apple fritter cake and um, yeah, there's just there's a ton in there, and I think I hope people really like it, especially this time of year. Well, it's so uh, it makes you just want to get in the kitchen because it it doesn't look intimidating, right? It's a lot not, of baking books. That's the idea. Yeah. I mean, behind sheet pan cooking in general, but um, yeah, the idea is that they're accessible, they're easy, they're relatively streamlined. A lot of them you don't even need a mixer, just a bowl and a whisk. So yeah, that's the idea: get people in the kitchen baking. You have three kids. Uh, is there a recipe that you let them help you with in the book? Because um, well, my youngest, my grandson, uh, Hercules, loves the kitchen. Oh, yeah. He loves tongs. So what could he do with tongs? Well, let him do the, the cover recipe. Make that chocolate chip cake with the fudge frosting. It's just as two bowls and some you know spatulas, whisk, get them in there, go and mixing the dry ingredients. And, you know, cooking with kids is always a little bit messy, but I find it's, and it's, it's always slower than you want it to be, but right. it's worth it. In the end, you know, they, they get the memories, you get the cake, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, okay, thank you. Miss Gilbert. Thank you. And uh, go out and get the, the book. What is it uh, again, Loretta? Sheet pan sweet, simple, streamlined dessert recipes. It's never too early to indoctrinate your kids. Let's talk about that when we come back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Okay, we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. We're in the kitchen with Molly Gilbert. Uh, what do you got there, Loretta? Well, I am looking through the chapter right now on breakfasts, and as somebody with a small child, I am always looking for kind of quick breakfast ideas, mm-hmm. um, and he loves baked goods. I mean, loves pancakes and things like that. But I mean, sometimes that feels like a lot of effort for a weekday morning. So um, I'm hoping you have some tips and tricks on on quick breakfast. I love the idea of baking muffins just in one sheet tray instead of scooping them individually. So what do you do at home? Yeah, well, that's a great question. One of my favorites for like make ahead kind of things is um, sheet pan pancakes. So you can make a whole no tray way. full of sheet pan pancakes. Really? Yeah, that's right. Um, I just, I put the butter on the pan and put it in the oven so that the whole pan and the butter gets really hot, whisk up the batter, put it on the hot pan and into the oven. And then it kind of... Almost just, like a Dutch baby, right? Almost Where like a Dutch baby, but it doesn't puff up like puff, that. Okay. It just kind of gets nice fluffy pancakes. And then I cut them into squares. Um, and, you know, your kids can... Um, customize the toppings however they want. My kids really love chocolate chips. If you want like bananas, strawberries, whatever, just sprinkle it on top. Um, And then cut them up into squares and you can freeze them in the freezer. So, you know, have them, 
that morning, whatever's left over, because you'll have a huge sheet tray worth <laughs> of pancakes, just freeze in a in a Ziploc bag or whatever, and then you can just microwave them a la carte in the morning. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And do well, they brown? I mean, the, do they brown on the top? Um, slightly, not that much. They're they're. Um, it's more the texture is just like light and fluffy, fluffy. and kind of what you want in a pancake. And do you give your kids real maple syrup, Molly? That's the real question. Come, come clean. I do. There's no log cabin in your house. I give them the real, they, you know, they, we have a budget for maple syrup. and it goes like, <laughs> it's, not, it's a line item. Right. Here. <laughs> what else budget. in that breakfast chapter, chapter intrigued you? Um, um, the other thing that I was looking at is the wreath. Oh, yes. that looks like a perfect having friends over for brunch mm-hmm. recipe. It is a, I just lost it here. It's a, a cinnamon, cinnamon nut, nut wreath. Yeah, so there's a cinnamon nut kind of filling that just comes together really quickly in the food processor. Oh. And I use store-bought puff pastry for that. Mm-hmm. So really? it makes it quick and easy. And it looks kind of complicated with the braid, but you're really just like layering the pieces of puff pastry on top of each other to get that kind of braided look. But yeah, that's a really good one, especially for the holidays. Just leave it out. People like take slices throughout the day and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden it'll be gone. Mm -hmm. And the puff pastry still puffs when you use it? I mean, I use store-bought puff pastry all the time. Mm -hmm. It's way simpler than trying to make it yourself. You just have to find one with real butter in it. Yeah. Uh, So, Mm -hmm. but it it still puffs? It puffs, yeah. It doesn't like totally puff so much that it like looks kind of weird and Uh gets too flaky that Uh you don't want to, you know, the, the... shape of the wreath kind of stays intact but it does puff a little bit yeah this looks delicious there's a recipe in there for a cinnamon roll poke cake so like instead of making a whole bunch of cinnamon rolls you make a sheet cake poke holes in it pour the cinnamon kind of filling on top and it kind of seeps down into the cake and then you top it with like cream cheese frosting on top so it's like get that cinnamon roll vibe without mm-hmm. having to roll and cut and like shape My all the cinnamon will be rolls. all in cinnamon rolls are like his So that sounds bread. like something too that um, what's important when you're making brunch and things are things that you can make ahead right because yeah. a lot of pieces to pull together Absolutely you could make that the night before and just serve at room temperature or you could like ever so slightly warm it in the in the oven or even in the microwave pieces before you you serve it. So we talked for a second about, uh, before the break, about indoctrinating kids into the kitchen. Yes. Uh, I, Loretta's kid, um, I'm not sure what you call him, but my name for him is Hercules. He is from the very beginning, from like months old, uh, was fascinated by the hot stove, the fire, the barbecue, working the tongs, you know, flipping things. And I would hold him and he would flip. It seems on brand for you. you know? <laughs> well, I don't know where he gets it from, but, um, but he is fascinated with it. So at what point do you start to include your kids in baking these desserts and what jobs do you give them that they can't mess up? Yeah, honestly, as early as they're interested, I would say um, I got one of those um, kitchen stools that has the um, sides around the edges so that you, they're sort of contained in the kitchen. You put them up against the counter and they can't really fall over or whatever. Um, I recommend one of those. So um, you're not supposed to hold him in your left arm? Over the over hot, the hot splatter. I, I hold him with does. my hand on his chest and his back legs straddling my arm, and I hold him over the stove. Last time they were whatever sitting, for you. I got this video, and it gave me a heart attack of Rory just <laughs> but he hovering has the tongs. over the flame. He has the tongs over, yeah. <laughs> He's learning, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I like, I like the stool method, but whatever works for you. Um, I find, like, they just like to kind of feel involved. So whether you're handing them tool, you know, a whisk, spatula, especially if you're baking. Um, sometimes I give them their own little bowl of, like, just random ingredients that they can mix up. And if it doesn't actually make it to the table, that's okay. Um, so you are, mean having them chop the pecans wasn't a good idea? <laughs> 
<laughs> if Hercules can do it, that sounds awesome. He still has I'll all take his all digits. the help I can get. <laughs> Miraculously. <Yeah. laughs> they have these like cool kind of plastic kids' knives that are serrated that I bought for my kids, and they seem to really like it on like veggies, cutting up before dinner, and just sort of anything that gives them that, you know. Well, and I find of, he's more likely to eat things absolutely. if he's participated in yeah. the making of it. That's the same sure. way with gardening, too, right? Yeah. If they grow the carrots, they're going to eat the carrots. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 I love having kids in the kitchen. It's both stressful and rewarding at the same time. <laughs> okay. How about for booze hounds like myself? What kind of sheet pan dessert? We talked a little bit about the pumpkin cake tiramisu. Yes, there's a that may or may not have a little rum roll. in it. Yes. I'm trying to think through the other ones. Um, I mean, you could add booze to like all kinds of Cake and stuff in here, right? There's a tres leches cake in there. You could add a little booze if you uh-huh. wanted to. Um, a it's little not... mezcal in there sounds a little smoky good. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't remember okay, all the right. boozy cakes, but I'm sure there are some in there. For sure. <laughs> what are you making for Thanksgiving? For Thanksgiving, I will probably be making the pumpkin pie bars. My family is very like specific about what they like and don't like on Thanksgiving. We've had these traditions for years, and like nobody wants the boat rocked at all. Um, I think that's reasonable. I think so, I'm too. the same way. Yeah. The one holiday a year. Yeah. Right. It's like, I like what I like. Don't mess it up. Um, but I'm usually stuck making like four pumpkin pies. But this year, I might try and make the pumpkin pie bars. So it's just basically this, uh, you know, giant pumpkin pie with a graham cracker pressing crust instead of rolling out the dough. Hopefully, no one will really notice that it's different. But um, <laughs> that's my plan. Uh-huh. And Loretta, okay. what are you making for Thanksgiving since you're well, in charge of... I'm making this rolled... Pumpkin cake. I've never attempted a rolled cake before. I am always on live TV. It works fascinated. Really <laughs> <laughs> and the Great British Bake Off by the, the rolls that they make. Mm-hmm. And it looks really difficult and intense. But I might attempt this pumpkin one. And then I like a pecan pie the most, probably. So I ice cream or whip? One of those. Whip. Whip. I'm not Holly, a are you ice cream or whip on most years? Um, I'm probably ice cream. I a la mode it. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I'm probably a whip person. Yeah. If I have a bowl, I, I want a bowl of ice eat. cream. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't love it. Yeah. And especially don't love it on hot things. I don't like when it gets all milky on my pecan pie. I agree pie. with that. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. That's Temperature true. pie. Well, there's also <laughs> pecan pie bars in there too. So if you didn't oh, want to make the perfect. pie. I mean, basically any pie more. like that, you could make yeah. into a bar, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a chic pan, mm-hmm. right? Because. Yeah. Uh, the name of the book is called Sheet Pan Sweets. Molly Gilbert's the author. You can also find her Sheet Pan Suppers out there in the world somewhere. And you said you had a third one? Yeah, One Pan and Done. One Pan and Done. And are you still blogging? Not so much. Okay. With the, with the three kids right now, but hopefully more in the future. All right. I find myself, I'd love a one pan dinner. Me too. I mean, you know, the fewer pans, the fewer dishes you have to do. I do the dishes in my house, so yeah. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Jackie and I differ that way. She loves a pan for everything, Mm -hmm. and I just... Well, she knows you're doing the dishes. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, Molly, thank you for joining us. Uh, Appreciate it. Have a good holiday season. You too. Thank you so much. Hope your book sells like crazy. Uh, If it's like my book... Congratulations on the baby. Thank you. How How long has it been? Three months. Oh, my God. I have six, four, and three months. <laughs> six, four, and three months. She wants a second. Go for it. Yeah. It's fun. Go for it's it. Fun. All right. <laughs> All right. When we come back, let's talk rice cakes on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. I got two olives in my martini. Got two olives. Rice. Oh, it's so nice. Rice. Oh, it's so nice. Shake it up once. Shake it up. 
All right, it's the Hot Stove Kitchen right here. We're in the middle of it, having fun with our guest here this today. You've got some quiche. You've got some cantaloupe. What else have you had? You had some salmon. Lots of bites here today. Loretta Douglas is here, guest hosting for Chef Terry Rotaro, who's probably having himself a little uh, Moroccan supper right now. It's about that time of day, isn't it, where he's looking at uh, maybe having a little dinner eight hours, nine hours ahead of us? Yeah. So good for him. First dinner. First dinner of the night. No no doubt he'll have a little harissa on it because that's his favorite (laughs) spice. Uh, Let's talk rice cakes for a few minutes. You know, kiddo, uh, I took you out to dim sum a lot when you were a youngster. And some of my favorites, the lobako, which is the kind of daikon radish rice cake, rice flour cake. Nor my guy, which is the sticky glutinous rice Mm -hmm. in wrapped in the lotus leaf and then steamed. And you and I would always fight for the lup chong, the little (laughs) Chinese (laughs) sausage in the center. Uh, But you got in tune to this kind of texture, which so much food is about its texture, right? Especially some of the things where people are passionate about. uh, I got to have that because it reminds me of my childhood Mm -hmm. or reminds me of this or that. Tell me about your love of rice cakes and... Uh, if you have today, uh, I mean, I know what I still make, the chong fun noodles, which yeah. are the rolled, tight, wide rice noodles uh, made right here in, in our own Chinatown uh, with the green onions in them. And then we pan fry them until they're crispy. So yeah. tell me about that and why it's important to you. Yeah, I, I don't know when it started, but this texture just became something that I really consistently crave, that chewy kind of stick to your back teeth a little bit texture and i know it's particular some people love it like it me some, some people, people out. Yeah. yeah are really freaked out by it but um as i got more and more into it um i kind of started finding and seeking out this texture in all different regional cuisines different mm-hmm. types of food and i was saying at the top of the hour that um i recently had my favorite dish from jewel in seattle which is their spicy rice cake um, and they have those more uh, Korean-style oval-cut rice cakes mm-hmm. um, that they are pan-frying till they're crispy, and then they're in a delicious uh, sauce with chorizo. Um, I got super excited last week. I was shopping at Trader Joe's, as I do, and they have introduced a tteokbokki in their frozen section, which is uh, kind of the traditional Korean uh, preparation of the long cylindrical rice cakes in the gochujang sauce. I haven't actually made them yet. My husband doesn't love tteokbokki, so I have to wait yep. for when he's out for it. And I was super excited to see that. I've bought them frozen um, before at the Shoreline Town and Country. Mm-hmm. has a few varieties. I love Japanese uh, mochi. All different ways of finding that texture. And so I wanted to chat about it today because i've been experimenting a little bit more with making it at home um i've never made the rice cake itself at home although i've now watched a few videos um and you it's doable it looks like so i might try that and make it myself but it's interesting to me how this texture has kind of evolved especially um in asian cuisine but um it's used in different ways like it's most frequently a sweet in japanese cuisine mochi is typically sweet um, it's very savory in Korean cuisine, so um, I just look for it everywhere I go now mm-hmm. and love it. So the one that uh, we have most often at our house is called Chungfun, C-H-E-O-N-G-F-U-N, Chungfun noodles. And you can buy them at, um, the place that I see them most is Shoreline Central, but you can buy them at Wajamaya, a lot of places that have a big noodle selection. Mm-hmm. And they will sometimes be 
in the refrigerator and sometimes just sitting out in a basket by the refrigerated section. It's just what we call a fresh rice noodle, which is funny because I guess it's not. When you think of fresh pasta, it's still made from dried wheat. And so fresh rice noodles are literally just kind of ground fresh or ground rice, pearl rice into a milk and then gelatinized, you know, yeah. it kind of cooks in a steam bath. And, and I, I went down to Chuchung Noodle Company with uh, our summer campers one year. Were you with us, Amy, on that yeah, day when we went course. to the Henry family at that time owned Chuchung? I think they've sold it since, but right next to the unfortunate fortune, fortune cookie, cookie bake, baking <laughs> machine was the pearl barley kind of, I hesitate to call it a grinder, but it's more of a washer that washes uh, the rice and maybe it's ground. I, I don't know. I think it's grinding. Yeah. I watched uh, this video, which is now like top of my list restaurants that I need to go visit is... Um, Joe's steam rice roll in New York, but he makes the chow fun noodles, the steam noodles that you often see at dim sum, uh, those wide rice noodles that are wrapped around different things, sometimes pork pork, or beef, sometimes the Chinese donut they put in the middle, Um, but they make it and he takes the boiled rice and puts it through a grinder at his shop and it comes out as this milk and then, speaking of sheet tray meals, they essentially steam it on a tray, mm-hmm. add the ingredients in the center, and then roll them up and cut and serve them. And um, I wanted to, like, eat through my phone. It looked so good when uh-huh. I was watching it. But that also has that same, like, glutinous um, texture. You know, most of the other ones that I've seen are are pounded. You develop the gluten in, uh, in the, the stickiness. Rice cake. It's not really gluten, but Sticky, it's stickiness. Yeah, yeah. By pounding it, mochi's pounded. The Korean rice cakes are pounded, but that one is just steamed and it still gets that texture. The one that I did uh, on the opening menu of the Dahlia Lounge 34 years ago, uh, my salmon preparation had lobako. I would make homemade lobako, which is a, literally a rice cake, but it's rice flour mm-hmm. that is mixed with uh, daikon radish. Turned up, right? Yeah, some sort yeah. of turnip or daikon or whatever. And dried shrimp. You can put a little minced pork or green onions or whatever it is that you want to add to it. Classically, it's dried shrimp and green onions, I think. And then you steam that whole sheet pan of lobako mm-hmm. or, or, or daikon radish cake. And then when that's done, you simply pan fry it to order. And that was my and salmon you, set at the Dahlia really? 34 years that. ago. Yeah, I wasn't there. No, you weren't. But I think you and I really gravitate towards that that glutinous texture, but then add in the crispy because I always order Lobago to go at dim sum and I take it home and I pan fry it super hard because it's never as crispy on the edges as I want it in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, And same thing with that. What I love about that dual rice cake or what I love about uh, the chong fun that you make for breakfast frequently at home is, is maybe slightly less traditional, but that really, really crispy edge with that soft, chewy center. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's hard to achieve. I can never get my little oval ones as crispy as Rachel Yang does at Jewel. Really? But well, she's probably got a real walk there. So your burner at home typically would be fifteen to 17,000 BTUs. The burner at uh, Rachel's walk would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 90,000 BTUs. Okay. So you can just accomplish, it's, you know, hers sounds like a jet en- engine. Yours sounds like a kitty cat <laughs> yeah. mowing, right? So it's just the difference in, in equipment. Okay. Uh, a way to get to that kind of glutinous area very simply is to take something like 
Calrose rice, right? Uh, the Nico Nico rice, uh-huh. which is very typically used in sushi, mm-hmm. where you cook the rice. And in sushi, they simply fan it and mix it with uh, sweet vinegar, rice vinegar of some sort, and then develop the, the stickiness. You know, when you have nigiri, right? The rice yeah. is like a little Sticks sticky together. ball. Well, that uh, ball pan fried crisps up so nice on the outside. And you can season the rice itself with anything a little ground star anise. Uh, so you have little licorice rice mm-hmm. cakes, uh, green onions, of course. Make it as spicy as you want with some sambal alek or something like that. Uh, but uh, just pan fry those in peanut oil or vegetable oil. Do you compact them at all? Like, do you yeah. press the rice together? Do you remember back when wild ginger was, we used to go there quite a bit. And then with the satays, you'd always get the little rice cakes. Rice cakes, okay. And they, those, those were just rice cakes. Mm-hmm. Whereas then you just take those and pan fry them. Okay. And you get that crispy edge with that glutinous kind of. Okay. center that you like so it's the same thing din tai fung you know serves the pan fried rice cake on their menu and i always do the same thing of i order it for home and then i sear it really hard right. when i get home to get those crispy edges but when we had tanakas on we always had just that pressed rice actual calrose rice and then pan fried and mm-hmm. um, it's one of the dishes i miss most from on. Also it was pressed on a sheet pan. Yeah, exactly. Pressed on a sheet pan. Perfect. And it, we served it with nori and like um, a kewpie mayo, I think. Kewpie mayo and yeah. maybe Tobiko? The, the last place I had daikon radish cakes, uh, the ones that I was talking about, uh, they make them in the sheet pan. They cut them up in little squares. Um, you know where Ranch 99 Market is up in Linwood? Yeah. Around the corner, so the north side, there's a place that does chicken, I want to say. And there's another restaurant there, and I can't tell you the name of it, but they walk sear little chunks of those radish cakes with XO sauce, which is very fishy and garlicky. And that sounds amazing. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia, brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. And Molly Gilbert sticking around in the corner back there because she thinks she can take us down <laughs> in our trivia challenge. When we come back, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Yay. Thanks, Molly. We're rounding up the show here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's Tom Douglas. Loretta Douglas. Sitting in for Chef Terry and Molly Gilbert of Sheet and Sweets has uh, decided to stay back in the corner. She loved our show so much. Couldn't she leave. hung out here for the rest <laughs> of the hour. She's going to join us as our next victim in our Food for Thought <laughs> Tasty Trivia Challenge. Brought to you by our very own uh, line of spice rubs and sauces called Rub with Love. There are 20 dry rub flavors, four tangy sauces, and a spectacular, if I do say so myself, toasted shallot mustard. They're great additions to any pantry. You can find them in stores all over the country like Whole Foods, Sprouts, uh, Central Market stores in Texas, Texas Central Market, uh, all all of our local grocery stores. uh, Bartels has them now. And, of course, you can find them right here at the Hot Stove Society Show. Okay, Amy, tell us... uh, how to play the game, and who we're going to play for, and how long we have to hold the, hold the L up on our forehead when we lose, oh. or when they lose. Okay, okay. So. Well, team, I'm going to ask each of you five different culinary questions, and the audience, the entire audience, is going to be the winners today, and the loser... Has to buy it. Has to buy it. So I'm always, I start as the loser. You're all, pretty much always the loser. <laughs> 
how we like it. So they get to go over to the gift store yeah. and uh, yeah. pick one rubber sauce. Supermarket sweeps. <laughs> yes. Amy and I have been dying to do a supermarket sweep. Oh, really? Maybe we'll just do it of rub with love. That's <laughs> great. That's awesome. All right. So, Loretta, I'm going to start with you. Oh, boy. Okay. So... Number one, what is the covering of a Battenberg cake made from? The I don't, cover- don't look at me. Oh, Molly knows. <laughs> um, Any hints for her, Molly? Covering. The covering is made from marzipan. Yes, it is. Oh. <laughs> How many crocus flowers must be harvested to produce one ounce of saffron? A, 250, B, 1,000, or C, 4,500? I'm going to split the difference and go 1,000. Sorry, the correct answer is 4,500. Wow. Okay, why did Idaho potato farmers set fire to 5 million pounds of potatoes in 1970? Did Pam write these? (laughs) This feels like a Pam question. Uh, Um... Because all the bras were burnt already. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> that's good. I, do, I don't know. Uh, to raise the crop price by limiting available supply. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's one that I put in for you. Okay. Give me, this is give definitely me a not a Pam. <laughs> How many shapes do McDonald's chicken nuggets have? <laughs> don't tell me you know this answer. I know. Oh, okay, How good. many shapes do McDonald's chicken nuggets have? Because they probably put them through a machine to get a certain number of different shapes. Six. Four. Four. And they have names. Really? Oh. The me. bone, the bell, the boot, and the ball. Wow. So next Learned time you have your nuggets. Every day. <laughs> next time I eat my nuggets, I'll be looking for the <laughs> yeah. specific right. shapes. Uh, okay. Well, that did not, this is not going great. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, vanilla pods are part of which flower family? Grace Jones had them in her dressing room because I got them for her personally. Not the pods, but the family. Lilies? Ooh, Ooh close. Uh, orchids. Orchids. I'm sorry. Loretta, you did um, one yeah. out of five. One out of Great. five. Uh, I'm never Molly, coming on again. Chance. <laughs> I only knew one of the answers. Molly's so going to dust me. <laughs> okay, Molly. Multiple choice. Mm-hmm. Who is this quote from? If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food give you their heart. A, Benjamin Franklin. C, Cesar Chavez. Or, or I'm sorry, B. Or C, Barack Obama. I'm going to go with C, Barack Obama. Oh, I'm sorry. It was Caesar. (laughs) I thought he only made salads. (laughs) Kiwi fruits originated from which country? Australia. Close. Yeah, China. Oh, close? (laughs) Australia's close to China, but I was thinking New Zealand. Uh, Yeah, I should (laughs) They do call them the Kiwis. Yeah. (laughs) What is the innermost layer of an onion called? A baby onion? (laughs) The core? I, I don't know. The apex. The apex. Wow, these are hard to yeah, do. These are super hard. Normally it's zero. We're right actually there. learning something today. Well, there is a note that these are from Kelty's trivia book. Ah. Um, okay, number four. Why were pigs replaced by dogs in truffle honey, hunting? Because maybe the pigs were eating the truffle? Yeah. Ooh. Woo. Once you got, got going, one. the hog gets going. <laughs> Which one of the following ingredients would you not find in a full English breakfast? A, baked beans, two mushrooms, three broccoli, or four bacon? 
I'm going to go with broccoli. Ding, ding, ding. Yay. <laughs> All right. Two out of You're five. You're smoking Loretta. Wow. <laughs> you doubled up on Loretta. i yeah. sit here with the L <laughs> on my forehead. Okay, Tom. <laughs> Cats and chickens cannot taste... True or false? Cats and chickens cannot taste sweetness in the foods they consume. Totally true. Totally correct. Uh, how many almonds are needed for one pint of almond oil? A, 200, B, 400, or C, 1,000? I'm going to go with the middle one. Uh, 1,000 would be correct. Wow. What That's a lot of almonds. 1,000 gallons of water needed to produce one pint of one almond pint oil. Of almond oil. What is the folk figure Johnny Appleseed known for? Uh, he is known for eating so many apples that he turned red and delicious. Uh, so close. Planting apple trees to make hard cider. Okay. Wow. This one might be a pan. Hens, true or false, hens lay heavier eggs when they listen to classical music. Totally true. <laughs> totally true. Last question, right? Last question. This is for, for the, the win. win. For the win. <laughs> what is the name of the firm base that connects a corn ear to the stock? The cob. No. <laughs> it is a shank. It's a shake. Yeah. Shake, shake, shake. Shank. Shank. Oh, shank. <laughs> oh, so it reminds me of my golf game. I just have to remember that. The shank. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we have well, a, tie. a tie. So our audience members are all winners whenever there's a tie. So you each get to go over to the gift shop and pick out a rubber sauce of your choice. Yay! Yay! Supermarket sweets! If you want to be lucky like our current audience members, just go to <laughs> hotstovesociety.com and buy a ticket. $30. Comes with breakfast. Delicious Annie Elmore breakfast. Or she's going to be Edna Mode for Halloween, just so you know. I'm thinking about coming as the, the dude. Her husband. Or is it her husband or her son-in-law? Oh, I'm unclear. We'll have to ask that. <laughs> if you want to be part of the show, join our community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us at thehotstovesociety.com. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. The show is produced today by Amy Richardson. Sean McFadden is our technical director. And our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show in Cairo... You can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Loretta, thanks for sitting in for Chef Terry today. Thanks for having me. Molly, thanks for being a good sport in our trivia. 